Hello and welcome to Adventures in Venueland, an EAMC podcast. This is your all-access pass to go backstage and behind the scenes with some of the brightest minds that cross the scope of the live entertainment industry. I'm Dave Rettelberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. We'll introduce you to some of our favorite people as we dive deep into the world of live touring shows and the venues that host them. Our adventure today takes us to Marina Del Rey. That rhymes. <laughs> and our special guest today, boy, I'm excited about this one. We've got uh, Jace Cohen joining us today. If you're not, uh, if you haven't heard the name, you will soon because this guy touches a little bit of everything in the live event industry. Uh, he's a co-founder of Versa, a company which we'll talk quite a bit about, done some very cool stuff uh, and worked with you know Live Nation for many years. But what I want to ask Jace right off the bat, and I, I think this is a first for our Adventures in Venue Land podcast. You are a, a Guinness World Record holder for the uh, <laughs> largest pillow fight in history? <laughs> that is correct, yes. A few years back, um, there was an artist uh, that I was tour managing for called Data Life, Swedish EDM DJ duo. Um, and uh, the pillow fights kind of became a pretty regular part of our shows. And we had the crazy idea to see if we could break the world record for the largest pillow fight in history, which turned out to be, uh, I think it was like, we had to break like 3,600 pillows, 3,600 people doing a pillow fight. So wow. we, we had a big show coming up at the Aragon Ballroom, which I believe is at least 4,000 plus capacity. Um, so, and it was, and it, yeah, yeah, and it was, it was a sold out show. So we, uh, we got on the phone with the Guinness people and we worked out a deal with them, which is a very complicated deal working with people from Guinness. Yeah, but it's, it's not as brought, easy as people think. Yeah, it's, it's pretty complicated. Um, but yeah, we, we brought out the Guinness team um, to, you know, do an official count. We had a, you know, to get that many pillows in, you know, we basically wiped out every Ikea in the entire <laughs> state of Illinois. <laughs> we were shipping pillows in by trucks. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's crazy. And, and yeah, I mean, we, we got everything together and, Towards the end of the show, uh, that's when we, we brought out the pillows to everyone, distributed them all, tried to try our best to keep everybody as calm as possible. And then we had a timer up and everyone had to fight for at least one minute while all the judges were standing around the balconies counting people, <laughs> making sure everyone wow. was fighting. <laughs> and uh, yeah, by the end of it, yeah, we crushed that record. We got, you know, well over, over 4,000 in there. And yeah, we ended up breaking the record. That's very cool. Did you uh, get in on that uh, pillow fight or were you observer? <laughs> oh, we definitely got in on it. As soon as it oh. started, <laughs> we jumped on stage and all started fighting. We had, we had, to, we had to help you to get the numbers up. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. Well, you know, Jace, uh, you know, I know you mentioned, you know, you've done some time as a, as a tour manager. Uh, you know, you started a music festival in, in China, which we'll touch on here in just a, in a minute. But first, let, let's get to your, your regular day job, right? Uh, if anything that any of us do is regular. Tell us about uh, Versa. Absolutely. Um, so we started Versa about five years ago. My partner, Toby Benson, and I. And uh, we started it as an independent talent buying agency, essentially. So mostly what we do is we represent venues, promoters, corporate events, private events, uh, music festivals, and we handle all their talent buying for them. 
it's kind of the opposite side of the coin from from the typical booking agent where they represent the talent. We come and we represent all of the um, different purchasing parties uh, mentioned. Um, and yeah, we, so we like I said, we focus on nightclub shows, basically booking out the calendars for a lot of different nightclubs, some concert venues. Uh, we got a we got a pretty robust music festival business that's that's constantly growing right now, and a lot of private and corporate events as well. So how did you get, you know, obviously there, there's so many of us and some people listening today that, you know, maybe they worked for a live nation or they worked for an AEG or they worked for a venue and they say, hey, I could I could get into this talent buying thing or, or maybe I could do my own thing. What motivated you to make that jump? Was it a pretty scary moment for you? Yeah, it was, it was definitely a, a pretty scary moment. You know, I was working at Live Nation for a long time and Insomniac Events, uh, which was a part of Live Nation. And yeah, splitting off from there to do my own thing um, was definitely pretty nerve wracking, but it was also, I just felt the timing was right that, you know, there were some opportunities and clients coming my way that, you know, made it seem like this was a good time to start a business and to, you know, jump ship in a safe manner, knowing there was like some, some clients, some things kind of lined up, ready to go. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably the biggest risk that anyone would think about is, you know, what if I get out there and then it doesn't pan out or, you know, I, I end up yeah. regretting it. So I think that's great that you sort of were lining it up, but I'm sure there is a little of that unknown, but that's also probably got to be a lot of the exciting part of it too, is you're sort of, you know, when you're working for a bigger company like a live nation, you're playing within their sandbox a little bit. And although they may give you a really big leash, uh, you're kind of still within their kind of parameters and what their corporate goals are. And so as risky as I'm sure it was and, and kind of intimidating, maybe in some ways, it also was probably really thrilling because you were probably like, you know, the world is my oyster, you know, like I can, I can do whatever, you know, if I, if I feel like this is the way we want to go, I don't have to worry about a lot of uh, approval from up high. I can, we can just kind of explore that and see where it goes. Yeah, exactly. So that definitely gave us, you know, that, that kind of flexibility, I would say. And, you know, and now, you know, being, being my own boss and working with my own clients is, is super rewarding. And I, I don't think I would, uh, it would take a lot for me to take another job again. <laughs> well, what what's a what is a day like for you? I mean, I know that in this industry, one of the things we love is no day is like any other. But what are you going into an office? Are you traveling a little bit of everything? So so walk us through kind of what a day in the life is like when you have co-founded your own music entertainment agency. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, well, part of mine was I actually, this. so we started this about five years ago. I was actually kind of burnt out on office life. I was doing that for a really long time. So actually been working from home for the last five years, like a home office setup. Ahead of the game, man. Yeah, which, I, which, I, which I've been really, yeah, really enjoying um, well before COVID. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I get started here. My business partner also lives in LA, also works from a home office. Um, and we have a few other employees that are kind of, scattered across the US. So we're kind of a like um, a, a remote workforce. So I think in this day and age, I don't think it really matters too much uh, where people are based as long as you're kind of somewhat on relatively same time zones. But yeah, uh, you know, day kicks off, probably start working somewhere between 8.30, 9am each day. And yeah, just on the phone all day, on email all day with, you know, with our clients, with the venue owners, with the festival producers, 
um, you know, figuring out what talent they want for their upcoming shows, you know, what our strategy is to, you know, help sell more tickets. And then on the other side, I'm on the phone with, you know, agents, artists, and managers trying to figure out, you know, who's routing through what town, how much money someone's looking for, and, you know, sending offers, so, you know, doing contracts, just trying to book, you know, book as many shows as possible. <laughs> I mean, you obviously do a lot of international business. And I think, you know, people here in the States, when they're touring and they're having to adjust for, you know, COVID and various variants, there was a lot of, you know, different regulations depending on the city you're in, depending on the state you're in. And I think that was challenging for tours. Is that exponentially more challenging when you're doing international stuff? Because not only... Do you have different, you know, caseloads in different countries, but you have different regulations in different countries? And, you know, is that something that made it even more of a moving target because you weren't just dealing with irregularities in the States so much as internationally and overseas? Yeah, definitely. I'd say when COVID hit, it definitely, you know, shook up a lot of the industry, uh, you know, especially our business. I mean, we, we had a pretty significant uh, chunk of our business in China. So that, uh, yeah, that definitely halted things for a bit, especially, I mean, but China was also the first to bounce back, interestingly enough, but, you know, because of their strict laws around um, people coming in and quarantining um, and, you know, a lot of visa issues, it's become pretty difficult for international artists to come in. So as of right now, I think until those, until those items are figured out, you know, quarantine and visas, um, it'll be a little bit until international artists can comfortably come, go back to China and start traveling and touring again. But yeah, I mean, other kind, yeah, kind of navigating. Co- I mean, even in the U.S., you know, let alone other countries in the U.S., I mean, it was varying state by state. You know, like New York had different laws than New Jersey, and you know, trying to move artists around and deciding where to fly them into, and you know, where they would need to um, um, to you know show if someone was vaccinated or unvaccinated, where they would need to fly into. So yeah, it was definitely a lot of moving parts and a lot of different, um, a lot of different targets to, to kind of hit, but yeah, it added, it added a level of complexity that none of us were really prepared for, but you know, we went through it and I think we learned a lot. We we ended up, we executed a lot of really good events during COVID. You know, we did a lot of virtual events. We did a lot of in-person stuff. Um, You know, we did a lot of like, socially distance events. Uh, we produced a lot of drive-in concerts. So we were just finding creative ways to kind of stay busy and keep people employed and keep kind of things moving, keep people entertained. Um, even if it wasn't like the usual experience that everyone's looking for, it was still something we could put together for them. Is there anything, uh, one of the things that we've talked to, I think a couple of guests and they're like, you know, a lot of these things like drive-ins or, you know, socially distanced thing. We're not in the business of that. It was kind of a band-aid for the time. But is there anything that you all did during that time that you were like, well, maybe, you know, we'll still dip back into this pool every so often, like whether it's virtual events or, you know, whether it is some sort of form of a drive-in, not necessarily out of necessity so much as out of uh, creativity, Uh, You know, is there something that you feel like you might, you know, dip your toe back into, you know, even if you don't need to? If the market would want it, I would love to do drive-in events again. (laughs) I thought they were really fun. Yeah. And I I don't know if people are going to, I mean, there was definitely a good for the time kind of thing, but now that normal concerts and everything's back rolling again, I don't know if 
drive-ins will be as uh, as desired as they were at the time. But I mean, that was a really cool experience, kind of figuring that out on the fly, like, you know, just going into the parking lot of, you know, the Grove or Angel Stadium and just figuring out how to put up a stage and how to organize a drive-in concert, knowing none of us had ever done it before. Um, and we probably put on a good, like, 30 or so. I, I, I focused on the electronic music concerts there with our partner, uh, Niederlander. And I mean, we sold out, you know, probably 90% of the shows that we did there. So you can see the demand, you know, was super, super high with, with the driving concerts. But I thought it was an interesting experience because it really showed that people really liked kind of having their, like going to, it was a different experience going to a normal concert, you know, you're in there, you're slammed next to every, every other sweaty body. You're waiting 20 minutes at the bar for a drink. You're trying to get some food, you know, if there's any food options to begin with. You're in line at the bathroom. And this yeah. experience kind of changed everything. So it was like, you roll up, you get your car spot, you get a spot next to you for your crew that's roped off. So it's like your own private little VIP area for like you and four of your friends. Anytime yeah. you want something to eat you want something to drink you go on your phone you order it it's at your it's at your car within you know less than five minutes you want to go to the bathroom you get in a digital queue on your phone and when it's your turn to use the bathroom it lets you know um you want something from merch you know you want to buy a t-shirt it's at your car in, in two minutes and then you're in your own area you can set up chairs you can set up a little dance floor you can bring you know a little light or something and you can just have a really good time with just you and your friends knowing nobody else can come into your area and it's just for you guys. Um, so I thought that was a really cool experience that I think will transit will transfer back to normal shows. And I think we'll see a lot of people got used to that kind of vibe and we'll be looking for that more like elevated VIP experience at normal shows. Yeah, I know that I the couple of driving events that I attended, uh, a couple I just came as a fan. Boy, I really enjoyed it. It was it was such, I mean, again, it didn't replicate the live concert experience, but it was uh, an interesting alternative that was just kind of a a, a fun night out and and doing that. Uh, uh, very cool. And congratulations to all you did there with uh, with Niederlander in uh, in kind of paving the way for the country for a lot of folks. I know a lot of us had our eyes and ears on um, uh, what was happening uh, in California because you guys came up with some really creative stuff. But let's let's step back just a little bit. Twenty eighteen. Right. You, you've you know, you kind of got things going with with Versa. Like you said, the you know, you know, live music, you you know, this industry, you feel like you've got a, a vision for what's going to happen, literally a vision. And you launch the Vision and Color Music Festival in China. How did this happen? Yeah. So this kind of came about um, just through some random connections, um, you know, a friend of a friend knew someone in China who was looking to do a music festival and wanted to uh, connect us with them to see if we could help them. So we just, you know, randomly just took a, took like a, a discovery call. Like you kind of do with a lot of clients over the years, um, just kind of, you know, get to know each other, understand what their goals are, what they were looking to do. And we were just, we were very impressed with their knowledge of music and what they were interested in, in producing in China. And uh, yeah, so over a few weeks, we, we just kept chatting with them. And, you know, eventually they, they invited us out to come out, meet the team, uh, see the venue, see if we could work out a deal together. And we ended up flying to, to Wuhan, China, probably, it was probably late, I think late 2017. And like I said, yeah, we met the team. We were very impressed with everyone. We had a great time. We saw some venues. Um, we were able to work out a deal with each other. 
And as soon as we got back to the U.S., we you know hit the ground running and started sending offers and you know educating um, a lot of agents about you know where Wuhan was and what it was all about. And because a lot of people at that time had never heard of this city. Um, yep. <laughs> yeah. No. No one had really known <laughs> about heard of it. Now. <laughs> <laughs> we were we, we we were early there as well. Um, yeah, and it, yeah. it, is, it, it is a really it is a really awesome city with like great people, great food. Um, really, it's a big, huge university city. Like like almost I think like a million university students live within the city. It's it's a massive massive city, um, at over like ten million population. And yeah, we were just we were just very impressed with everything. Uh, got back, started doing deals. Um, got together a good list of artists, booked for the for the, our first event, um, which was going to be in it was like late late 2018. So we went out there again, and we brought it was like Martin Garrix and Marshmallow. It was a big a big EDM festival, and it was the first time a lot of these acts had, had obviously uh, played in Wuhan. Um, a few acts had played there previously at like club shows, but for the most part, there had never really been a music festival there. So this was kind of the first one. So yeah, we were able to bring the first one. And it was a huge success. You know, we sold out, I think it was about 25,000 people per day over two days and got a lot of great press and, you know, everyone loved it. And, you know, the, the team had a great time in China and wanted to keep the ball rolling. So we started working immediately on our next one. And we threw the next festival six months later in the same town, different artists. And then that one went really well again. Then we threw the third one, which was in November 2019 there. That one was a huge success. We were getting ready to throw the next one. It was like almost every six months you could do a huge festival there. The demand was was crazy. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, we, we did the one in November 2019. And then we came back. And then about a month later is when we started hearing like rumblings of like, you know, something going on out there. So, yeah, we kind of just like slowed down the conversations and everything until, you know, things got a uh, things got fixed up but still kind of in the situation a little bit today you know almost three years later i bet that was wild having yeah. those people on the ground there too you know like that you were working with i'm sure they were yeah, and they definitely became yeah and they became you know almost like family to us you know we were very very close with them and some of them are still there in wuhan i mean they were there giving us you know day by day updates on what was happening there and um some of them stayed still some of them moved to other cities around china but by June, so this kicked off in like December 2019. By June of 2020, they're like they had it so well contained that there were 10,000 person music festivals <laughs> going on in oh, Wuhan. Wow. Like, yeah, Jeez. water parks and stuff because because they had it, they had eradicated it. Like they they did a really good job getting rid of it. And like we're in the U.S., you know, we went through it for a few years, <laughs> having a tough yeah. time. Um, we did not yeah. as good of a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it, it's just you know, congratulations on launching that. But boy, I mean, you know, at a time when, you know, Wuhan was just such an abstract kind of place for us. I mean, to, to have been uh, uh, such a piece of the live music industry right there. And, you know, as this happened and this whole thing is, you know, uh, exploding, is there a moment when you like, you know, so, so many of our guests on the podcast have uh, wondered, is this ever going to come back? You know, because obviously you're right there in the epicenter. Was there a moment where, especially being part of your own business, you stepped back and you kind of said, oh, my God, before you got to the, you know, the drive in music events, what, what was what was your mindset like? I'd say for, I mean, definitely, I mean, U.S. shut down around March 2020. And then I'd say for like, you know, March and April was still kind of busy, like, you know, rescheduling shows, trying to everyone's still trying to figure it out. And then I think by the time May hit, everyone was just like, OK, let's like really just stop. We're just keep pushing the date farther out and nothing's changing. So 
I'd say for about the month of like May, things were, you know, looking a little bleak for a minute. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Not really knowing what was going to happen. But then, I mean, starting after that in like June, I mean, there were some some states um, in the U.S. that were, you know, not locking down and were able to still have shows going on. So, I mean, we started getting busy again, kind of working with some other some some markets that were like, you know, legally allowed to have shows and things were everything was normal in those places. So it was only about a month when things I think were kind of looking a little bleak. But after that, it just, you know, felt busy again with, with those markets. And then, you know, the drive-ins picked up and then virtual events picked up. So we yeah, well, there wasn't there wasn't a ton of downtime, to be honest, for us, which I which I think is good for being like independent. You know, you can do more stuff like that. Whereas like my friends who worked at like Live Nation or AEG, like they were just told, like, you know, just sit on your hands, don't do anything for now, like for almost right. a year, where we like basically yeah. had, only had a month of that. Well, and I think you had a, a nice advantage, like you mentioned, is that you saw or heard from the people you knew in Wuhan that, you know, there is another side of this hill, you know, like it's, <laughs> I don't know how long it's going to take us to get there in the US, but you're probably thinking, you know, there is an end in sight, whereas, you know, some of the people here were like, what, what yeah. is life going to look like for the next two or three years, you know? So yeah. uh, I'm sure that gave you a dose of optimism, knowing that, you know, as things were starting to recover there and you're kind of seeing us take that same path just at a different speed um, that, you know, it wasn't like it was going to be a permanent thing. Exactly. So Jace, you know, uh, before you got to the point of, uh, you know, being, you know, this co-founder of your own agency, uh, you know, it took a, it took a lot of experience and time in the industry to get there. So tell us how you first got involved in the live events industry. Absolutely. Um, my, so I grew up in Philadelphia and I got a job when I was, when I turned 16, I got my driver's license and I got a job at this venue called the electric factory. And I was a runner there. And for those who don't know what a runner is, it's basically you are uh, a band's slave for a day. So a band yeah. comes into town at 6am, a band comes into town at 6am, you meet them at the venue, you you know, take their bus drivers to the hotel, you take them places, you, they need to run errands, uh, you get their laundry done, you pick up their meals for them, you run them back and forth for sound check, all kinds of stuff. There's, you know, a million kinds of weird and odd requests that happen. And you just, every day, you just never know what it's going to be like. So I did that job for about five years, kind of all throughout um, high school and throughout college. And I, I went to college in Philadelphia as well. Um, so I stayed local, was able to continue working with them. And eventually during that process, um, the electric factory concerts was, was, uh, bought up by SFX, um, which then rolled, they, then they, then they spun off live nation. Um, so I kind of stuck around through that whole transition. And throughout that time, um, when I was a runner, I was also doing, that's when I was doing tour managing on the side as well on the weekends, coming back, working coming back to, you know, Electric Factory and Live Nation and working shows, runner, production assistant, kind of just like, I would just jump in and offer to do anything. I would push cases. I would be a stagehand. I would, you know, whatever they needed help with catering. <laughs> it didn't really matter to me as long as I could like stay around the the business one way or the other. And then uh, eventually, so I was a tour managing for um, this, that DJ group, Data Life, I was talking about. And, and Live Nation Philly was just picking up a... Uh, an all EDM nightclub. And they approached me 
um, because I had a pretty good knowledge about electronic music. So they came to me and asked if I would want to be the booker for the new club they were picking up. And at the time, I really didn't even know what that meant. I didn't know what being a booker was or being a talent buyer. I didn't know how sure. to do it or or what it was. And <laughs> my uh, my boss at the time, uh, quite a few bosses <laughs> for sure, but some of them, you know, um, Stacy George and Jeff Gordon from Live Nation Philly were the ones to help bring me in, and Brian Traeger and Dave Nabalski, and we had a good we had a good crew together, and they kind of all helped mentor me and teach me and. And uh, yeah, I think I kind of just like, they kind of just dropped me in or just like, all right, start, uh, start booking this club. And I just had to like, figure it out, ask questions, start talking to agents, figuring out how to negotiate deals and, and just kind of figured it out on the fly with, with some really good, uh, some really good guidance and mentors there. So we did that for a few years at Live Nation in Philadelphia and just kind of became evident that, you know, I was doing, I was mostly focusing on electronic music. So it sort of just felt evident, you know, like the electronic music scene in Philadelphia can only grow so big. And if I, if I wanted to kind of continue my career and keep growing in that, you know, booking, you know, talent buying world and electronic music, I needed to like, you know, kind of expand outside of just Philadelphia. So right around that same time, Live Nation was starting up their electronic nation division, um, which they brought in James Barton from Cream in the UK to help run and then around that time is when they did the acquisitions of Gary Richards and Hard Events. Um, and then they did Insomniac with Pasquale Rotella. And so they were really like organizing a really strong electronic um, scene out there in Los Angeles. So I had blind emailed James. He had never met me. And I just asked him if I could fly out to meet him. Um, and I just flew out there on my own dime to LA, sat down with him, you know, told him what I wanted to do. And you know, he said if I wanted to, uh, you know, come out to LA, that you know, be happy to like join the team. Wow. Um, so, so that's that's what I did. So I, I kind of transferred from Live Nation Philadelphia out to Live Nation in Beverly Hills, and helping them in like the electronic touring division. And there, we were just helping you know put together tours for like, I think at the time it was like Chainsmokers and Swedish House Mafia and Cascade and Dead Mouse and Hardwell and a lot of um, big EDM acts like that at the time. And then I was I was there for a bit, and then um, we were probably there for like two years or so. And then James ended up uh, leaving the company, and you know Pasquale um, was definitely focused, you know, pretty heavily on Insomniac, and and um, things were just kind of like uh, people were kind of going in their different directions. So I uh, I went with Insomniac, and I moved over there to be a talent buyer, um, and there I focused on the nightclub shows. Um, some touring stuff and some of the uh, concerts and and branded events. So definitely learned a lot working for those guys because it's exclusively electronic music over there at the time. And, you know, obviously they put on the biggest music festivals in the world, the EDC Vegas and EDC Mexico and, you know, some of the largest productions I've ever seen in my life. Um, So really cool experience working there and, you know, learned a lot from all the great mentors I had at, at that company and it was there for a few years and then, you know, it takes us up to, I think it was around 2017 is when I decided to split off to start, uh, to start Persa. What do you think is maybe as someone that focuses in EDM and electronic music is maybe the biggest misconception about that or something that you feel like is overlooked about it? Because I do think people um, and they're definitely in this industry and just the public, but people in the industry who even know better 
have a tendency to put things in buckets. Like this is an urban show. This is an EDM show. This is how it is. This is how it's going to perform. All of them are the same. And I think that's not correct. And there is a lot of variety amongst it and a lot of variety in the fans. But, you know, what do you think is maybe something that people overlook about that type of genre? Yeah, um, I'd say kind of going back to what you said about there being different like subgenres and there's a lot of variety in it. And, you know, electronic music is a very wide spectrum. And, you know, you know, if you book a, a trance act versus a dubstep act, you're going to get a very different clientele that's going to spend differently and spend on different things. And it's you really got to understand the music and the genres and the cultures to really know what type of show you're booking and what your goal and your outcome is going to look like and what your ticket sales will look like and, you know, what your drops will be and what the bar will do. And, and the only way to know that is by really like just understanding the music, understanding the culture, you know, it helps to be in within the scene a bit. So, yeah, I mean, it's not like, yeah, I, I, like you said, I mean, like same goes with like country music, you know, you think you're just booking a country show, but there's actually different, you know, subgenres within the country world that will, will yield different yeah. results. And you only really get to know those things once you're kind of in that scene or in that industry and, you know, you're working in it and you get to understand the different players and the different genres and how it works and who it attracts. So same, same thing goes with electronic music goes with, you know, probably every genre across the board. Yeah, you know, and I'm glad, Paul, I'm glad you asked that question, because I think there's a lot of people listening today that have uh, been in, in marketing uh, for venues for a while, but, you know, let's just be honest, don't get EDM, right? So, Jason, what is it about EDM that, you know, that, number one, has your attention, and what do you think it is about the live music experience with, with EDM? Yeah, sure. Well, I definitely think, you know, EDM is a very global kind of music. That's why it can be so easily transmutable to a place like China, which might not necessarily, you know, everyone speak the English language, but with with electronic music, it's definitely more universal because there's not, I mean, for the most part, there's not a ton of lyrics to begin with. So it's really all about like, you know, the sounds and the music and, and the beat and everything. So I think it's very, it's, it's a very widely, you know, uh, global, kind of music it's listened to basically in every single country in the world um so um i definitely think it that that helps it um i think people listening don't necessarily understand why people would go to an edm concert versus going to a club so what is it what is it that's special about an edm concert um i'd say a few things one is like the the community at electronic shows is very very tight um it's all about like almost like the sixties, it's all about like peace and love and respecting each other. And it's very like, very community driven. And, you know, you go to these shows and I bet people end up seeing a lot of the same people they see at other shows and they become, they gather up like a pretty tight community. Whereas like you go to different like rock shows or pop shows, you know, I don't think you really have that um, same like camaraderie with like the other fellow fans that are there with you. Um, whereas electronic shows, you know, you, you kind of do, you know, everyone's kind of, in there together, dancing together, meeting friends. So I think there's a really tight, tight community there. And also um, productions can can really vary pretty greatly depending on, you know, the whoever the uh, event producer is, but the productions can be pretty like mind blowing with the, the level of technical um, aspects that they bring into these shows from like LED and pyro and cryo and CO2 and confetti and streamers. And they, they really make it feel 
more than just like a typical concert. It's almost like you're at like a huge party as well. So I, th- I think those are some of the draws for uh, for fans and why they keep going back to electronic shows. Yeah, it does seem more like to me like a full experience and not so much there to just see the one act as you are seeing the act, but just as you head on, there's all this visual element involved. And especially with these festivals, I mean, even away from the stage, there's so usually there's so many like art installations and there's just this whole creation kind of around the festival, around the event, around the stage that makes it much more than just like, I'm going here to see this artist, but more of like, I'm going to experience everything that is a part of this, be it from the music, but also the community and the people there and the culture and the art. So it it does seem a little more like widespread than uh, maybe your typical event. Exactly. I, I fully agree with that. Jace, you spent six years, you know, as the as the tour manager for Dada Life. What did you take from that experience that's helped you be better in your position today? I definitely learned how to travel well. <laughs> I'm sure it's probably no easy thing to learn. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty tough when you because with with DJ actually it's not like it's not typical. It's not usually. I mean, you can do the typical you know tour bus route, and we, we did do that once. Um, rented the tour buses and did a, a, a bus tour like that. But for the most part, DJs require very little production to be carried with you. A lot of this stuff can be provided locally. So it makes traveling a bit easier, which makes the routing less important, which makes the travel a bit harder. <laughs> so, you know, you could be yeah. playing a show, a, a, a typical weekend routing could be like Thursday, Edmonton, Friday, Orlando, Saturday afternoon, Las Vegas, Saturday night, San Francisco. And that could be an easy four show weekend. So it's like, you know, learning how to properly navigate that with booking flights and, you know, booking hotels, whether you need to book them the night before to guarantee that you're there, they're there ready for you when you get in. Cause like every minute you get a chance to sleep, you need to take it. And, you know, and then you got to, um, organizing sound check times and, you know, organizing, dinners and after show meals and you know cars and making sure we get to the to the airport on time the next day and so i'd say really learning how to how to travel um and routing tours and shows really tightly um by actually being on the road and actually also um i think it also has really helped my business today by touring for so long i got a chance to meet so many other promoters and venues and club owners who have now become some of my clients today. And I only met them because I was out touring at the shows as a tour manager, meeting them. And then when it came time for me to start my own company, I reached out and said, Hey, if you need help, you know, booking the club, I'm, I'm happy to help jump in. And, and a few of those I've, I've been able to bring along with me as clients now. What a great, what a great experience to have that opportunity. Something you obviously you do quite a bit of traveling quite a bit, you know, around the world, but what do you do for fun these days? Take some downtime and, and, and what do you do? What's, what's personal life like? Uh, fun for me is very simple stuff. <laughs> it's all all outdoor stuff. So it's like I live in Marina del Rey, so I go to the beach a lot. Love hiking, tennis and golf. Love just being outside, going camping, rock climbing, you know, kayaking. Anything to do with out, outdoors and nature, I think is really nice and just kind of grounding and resetting, you know, it's good for uh, mental health, I believe. Did I hear you're you're uh, were at one point learning Mandarin in your spare time? 
Yes. Uh, yeah, my partner and I uh, were doing a joint uh, class over Zoom with a teacher. Wow. And uh, yeah, we've been we've been learning Mandarin through her and trying to uh, impress our uh, colleagues in China next time we can come back <laughs> over. <laughs> so speaking of that, you know, is there a is there a, a future for you uh, in, in China with live events? You, you see that happening again or, or what's next for you guys? Oh, absolutely. We we definitely feel that China will come back and come back very strong in a, in a big way. And I think there will be a lot of pent up demand there um, to see these artists. And, you know, we're going to be sure. at the forefront of that, bringing them in as, as soon as we can, as soon as like, we're allowed to again. Very cool. Well, I got to say, you know, it's been quite an adventure there for you, uh, uh, right uh, right from the heart of, uh, uh, you know, the pandemic to, you know, back to the drive-in concerts and launching that. And uh, to kind of where you're at today, congratulations on everything. Sounds like sounds like quite a ride. Is there anything that you're working on that, that we didn't touch on? Yeah, one interesting thing we got coming up um, in about two weeks, actually, is we're throwing, we're helping produce the first ever NFT gated music festival in Las Vegas. Um, All right. Called, so if you lost people yeah, on EDM, <laughs> if you lost people on EDM, an NFT music festival, what is that? <laughs> yeah, so... Basically, um, so we've got a, a festival coming up in two weeks in Las Vegas. It's at this venue, this really cool venue called Area 15, which is a very immersive, experiential type, like kind of fully immersive, like 360 degree immersive art installation type venue. It's not not your traditional uh, concert venue. Um, there's lots of, you know, different spaces and really cool art exhibits and virtual reality, and all, all kinds of wild stuff. Um, so that's what we, we felt it was a great place to uh, to launch this event. And we've got a really good lineup together. It's like, we've got the Kid Leroy, we've got Chainsmokers, um, Griffin, Sophie Tucker, Laney, Toki Monster, Bob Moses, and Sway Lee. Um, so really, really cool lineup. And basically the only way to gain, so there's no tickets for sale, no tables for sale the, to the general public. The only way to gain access is to be a holder of a certain NFT that After Party has put out. It's called the Utopian series. So if you're a holder of a Utopian NFT, you can come to the event and bring a, bring a friend with you. So that's the only way to gain it, to gain access to the event. Um, wow. So yeah, there's, there's no tickets for sale in the secondary. There's nothing like that. It's like if, 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 you, if you purchased an, this NFT and you're a part of the, the After Party community and, and you show up with your NFT and, you know, show up at the door and bring your friend, you're, you're getting into the show. Otherwise you're not getting in. <laughs> it's probably impossible to forecast being so early in the whole kind of NFT wave. And I think we're all kind of talking about it and what does that future look like and how much brands should get involved in it. Uh, but do you think something like that is, uh, you know, going to happen more in the future? Or do you think it's kind of like a fun thing to sort of take advantage of when it's, and it's more like a flash in the pan or what do you, what do you see maybe as that future of like NFTs and live events? I mean, I'm confident enough in it to make a bold prediction that I don't know exactly how long it will take or when it will happen, but all ticketing will move onto the blockchain and NFTs will be the way to gain in and out of all events. Wow. You heard it here first. Prediction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, love it. you might not be wrong. You know, I, I can see it heading that direction for sure. Yeah, especially, I mean, it, it, it can solve a lot of problems about scalping tickets and the secondary market and, you know, ensuring that, uh, you know, if a ticket's purchased for a concert and that ticket is resold at a higher value, a piece of that sale will go back to, to the original uh, ticketing company and, and then ultimately go back to that artist. So, 
I think it's it's going to help solve a lot of a lot of secondary issues. There you go. That's uh, you know, again, some of the stuff you're talking about today is is something nobody else has ever really touched on in any other episode we've had. So I really appreciate you joining us. Before I let you go, I want to hit you with our fast five. It's five quick questions. Just looking for your quick instant response. First up, what was your very first concert? The Offspring at the Electric Factory in Philadelphia. How about your favorite concert? <laughs> Ooh, favorite concert. Um, my most recent favorite concert was probably Rufus Du Soul at Bank of California Stadium here in LA a few months ago. If you could host a music festival in any city, where would you do it? LA. How about an artist that's on your booking bucket list? Who's somebody you've always wanted to book but haven't haven't uh, had the chance to book yet? Daft Punk. Last question. Oh, Last question. I know I would love that. Uh, what is <laughs> what's your theme song? So, Jace, you get your own TV show where cameras follow you around uh, all the time. And what is the song that plays over the opening credits of the Jace show? How about Started from the Bottom by Drake? There you go. There, there you, you go. go. Yeah. <laughs> what, a, what a great and unique adventure you shared with us today. I really appreciate that. Hey, if people want to follow you or reach out to you, what's what's the what's the best thing uh, that you can do or, or anything you want to plug with the company? Uh, sure. I mean, my email is very simple. If anyone wants to reach out, it's just jace at versa.la. And my Instagram is jace, jace, jace. Pretty simple with uh, two underscores between the words. But yeah, that's it. <laughs> There you go. Just that easy. Hey, I really appreciate you making the time for us today and, and best of luck with everything in the future. I appreciate it. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me yes. out. It was really fun. And thanks to everybody for listening to this episode of Adventures in Venue Land. Remember, you can subscribe and find more episodes wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'd love your five-star reviews so you can help others find us. Until the next adventure, I'm Dave Rettelberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. Thanks for listening, everyone. Adventures in Venueland is a side project of the Event and Arena Marketing Conference, a nonprofit organization bringing together people in the field of live entertainment to discuss marketing, publicity, and sales trends. Find out more at eventarenamarketing.com. Audio editing and mixing by Camille Faulkner. Design and digital advertising by Megan Ebeck. Copywriting and publicity by Samantha Marker. Guest Booking and Brand Strategies by Paul Hooper. Guest Research by Dave Rettelberger. Marketing Strategies by Paul Hooper, Megan Ebeck, and Samantha Marker. Thanks for joining us. Until the next adventure.